So we have an issue in that um, apparently I used a font on my computer that is not on the computer we're using this morning. So this could be interesting. Um, let me see where we're at. Well, we'll go with it. And uh, you'll just have to maybe read through a little bit of messed up font. All right. Well, it is Palm Sunday. It's the day when we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The crowd celebrated him as a coming king. And he was a king but not the kind that they thought. Now, we're also in our church in the middle of a series on God's law from Psalm 119. Now, we're not going to look at Psalm 119 this morning, but we are going to keep in the theme of law and justice, God's law, as well as the Palm Sunday theme of kingship. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the trials of Jesus that happened during this last week of his ministry leading to the cross. And in that, we will see both justice and injustice. We'll see injustice from the Jews and the Gentiles as they carry out their trials, but we'll see justice from God. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. And I'll be sharing details this morning from all of the Gospels, but you can just follow along in Matthew. So whenever it's possible, we'll be looking at the story as Matthew tells it. When we hit something that another writer gives us some details that Matthew doesn't include, um, I will just kind of share those with you along the way. But to keep it simple, you can just stay in Matthew's Gospel this morning. For the most part, I won't take the time to fully read all of the passages because there are too many for the time that we have this morning, but as you see them on screen, you can turn there and glance at them while I'm talking about them if you find that helpful. Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 57, and I'll go down to verse 66. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Well, when we look at the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biggest part of those books is taken up with the final week of Jesus' ministry leading up to his crucifixion. 
I always find it challenging when we get to this time of the year because from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, so much ground is covered in the Gospels. It's about seven chapters in the book of Matthew, but uh, we only have these two weeks in terms of the church calendar where we're talking from Palm Sunday to the crucifixion to the resurrection. So these trials that happen, happen at the end of that week, and they move very, very quickly. They're all taking place in a night and the early part of the next day. But the crucifixion itself doesn't come out of nowhere. The whole story has been leading up to it. Each of the gospel writers has been telling a story that leads to the cross. And while the trials happen within a 24-hour period, the reality is that this conclusion has already been reached quite a while earlier. For example, John tells us that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, why are they so dead set on getting rid of Jesus? There's a lot of reasons. They're jealous. Jesus threatens their power and authority. Jesus has a different vision for the nation than they do. But at the end of the day, the issue revolves around kingship. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the king? And if so, what exactly does that mean? Jesus makes certain claims to kingship, but the religious leaders reject Jesus as king. So today on Palm Sunday, we've read the account of Jesus entering Jerusalem as the king riding on the donkey with the crowds celebrating, but in no time at all, that momentum turns against him. And the idea that Jesus is king is exactly what will be used to generate the opposition necessary to see him crucified and gone. Jesus undergoes a series of trials, both from Jewish leaders and Roman ones. And while both center on claims of kingship, there are different charges and concerns because the Jews and the Romans are concerned with different things. We'll look at the Jewish trials first, and then the Roman ones. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an overview of the trials really briefly, and then we'll just look at the specific charges that are brought against Jesus. All right. The first thing that Jesus faces in terms of the chronology of these Jewish trials is questioning by Annas. Jesus faces this nighttime interrogation. Annas was formerly the high priest, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is in that role. But since Annas is still around and was formerly the high priest, he still holds a lot of power and authority. Once Jesus was arrested on the Mount of Olives, he's taken to the high priest's palace. Probably both Annas and Caiaphas live in that palace. And Jesus is brought before Annas. John tells us that when Jesus was questioned here in front of Annas, he was struck and he was bound before being sent on to his next questioner. So you can already see right there the injustice of the process. Jesus undergoes these corporal punishments, being beaten and bound, though he's done nothing wrong and he's been convicted of nothing. And the choice to do this at night 
hides what they are doing from public view. The second thing in terms of the chronology that happens is that Jesus is questioned by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. If you look at Matthew 26, verse 59, you'll see that Matthew tells us the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Okay, they're seeking false testimony. In other words, they're trawling for evidence. You've seen this maybe uh, as you watch uh, a movie or you watch a TV show that has a trial in it. You'll see one attorney stand up and object, Your Honor, counsel is fishing for evidence. They're going on a fishing expedition, something along those lines. Well, that's what's happening here. They know the outcome that they want. What they don't have is evidence. And so they're looking for some, even knowing that it will be false witness. And even then, they have trouble getting any together. The injustice of what the Sanhedrin is doing is plain to see. They're violating God's standards for, the, the, for evidence um, gathered by witnesses. So you have the questioning by Annas, you have the questioning by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and then you have the decision of the Sanhedrin. That's the final stage of the Jewish trials. And this comes at dawn as the Sanhedrin gathers and comes to a decision. Luke tells us in his gospel that they go to a new location. It's probably one of their formal meeting places. Could be one of the chambers around the outside of the temple, like the, the Hall of Hewn Stones or something similar to that. Matthew 27 and verse 1 tells us, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And according to Mark, as they met during the night, they all condemned him as deserving death. But there's no recorded verdict or sentence given by the Sanhedrin. Now, it may simply be that because at this point in time, the Romans had taken away the right of the Jews to give someone the death penalty. That may be just simply why, but there's no actual verdict or sentence given. The only thing that's given is what they want to see happen to Jesus. But the Jewish leaders want him to die. They agree that he deserves to die. So what do they do? They make it a problem. Get the Romans to do their dirty work. Now, the fact that the Jews are using the Romans in this way does not excuse the Romans. They're still responsible for what they do, but it does highlight the injustice of the Jewish leaders' actions. So that's just kind of a quick sketch of what happens during the Jewish trials. Let's think about the charges that are brought against Jesus during these Jewish trials. There are quite a few different things. To keep it simple, I'm just going to put them in kind of three groupings. And the first grouping is this. Jesus is accused of being a false prophet, a false teacher, and leading disciples astray. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses had said that one day God would raise up another prophet like him. But if someone came who was a false prophet, he should be put to death. And you'd know he's a false prophet when what he prophesied did not actually take place. However, these religious leaders have known for a long time that Jesus is legitimate in this respect. John in his gospel tells us that after Jesus raised Lazarus, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, 
what are we to do? For this man performs signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And now during these trials, John tells us, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So they're questioning Jesus' teaching as well as his effect on these disciples. Back in Deuteronomy 13, Moses had warned that a false prophet or teacher would lead people astray to serve other gods. Now the religious leaders are implicitly charging Jesus with leading people astray. So how does Jesus respond to this? Well, John records for us that Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus says, in other words, my teaching has been open to the world, available for anyone to test and evaluate. Nothing to hide, nothing to retract, nothing to retcon. I stand by it. Jesus. The second kind of charge that is brought against Jesus in these Jewish trials is that of threatening the destruction of the temple. Since the temple was central to the Jewish religious practice, it's the dwelling place of God, it's God's throne on earth, this was viewed as an attack on God himself. When Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple at the beginning of his ministry, John tells us that the people misunderstood. And when a few days before these trials, Jesus had acted out the judgment that was coming by symbolically overturning the tables in the temple, Mark tells us in chapter 11 that they sought to kill him because of this. Now, if you're in Matthew 26, you can see in verse 61, Matthew 26, 61, that when the religious leaders were seeking false witness against Jesus, they found two who were willing to say that Jesus said he was able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Again, they're misunderstanding what it was that Jesus said. And as these accusations are made, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 63. Jesus remained silent. He's saying... There's really no charges even to be answered here. All you have is two false witnesses who are misrepresenting what I said. So there's no answer given. Well, the third and final aspect of the charges that are brought against Jesus in these Jewish trials is the aspect of blasphemy. Is Jesus speaking against God? Is he reviling him? Or speaking against God's representatives? In Matthew 26, verse 63, you see Caiaphas challenges Jesus. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's saying, listen, remember, you're under oath. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus' response here is key to understanding why they want to get rid of him. Jesus says in verse 64, he says, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, when Jesus says these two things, he's combining the imagery of two Old Testament texts. Psalm 110, verse 1, 
and Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. So the language of being seated at God's right hand, that comes from Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110 speaks of the Messiah, a priest king who will be seated at God's right hand. In other words, the Messiah will be a ruler, a king. The imagery of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven comes from Daniel chapter 7. In these verses, the Son of Man is depicted as ascending to God's throne to receive an everlasting kingdom and dominion over all people. So, when Jesus is asked about being the Messiah, he's claiming that the authority and power he is about to receive will be greater than theirs. He will be over them. In their eyes, this is blasphemous because Jesus is speaking against them and they are God's representatives. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 faces opposition from four great beasts. So if Jesus is the Son of Man, then those who oppose him are like the beasts. One writer said that Caiaphas is not seen then to be the chief priest, but the chief beast. And when Jesus speaks of coming on the clouds, he's taking language that everywhere in the Old Testament is reserved for God coming in judgment. And he's applying it to himself. He's saying that he will be the one to judge the nation and the world. So why do these religious leaders charge Jesus with blasphemy? Well, in this answer, Jesus has claimed that he will share God's throne, he will execute God's judgment, and he will rule and reign over God's kingdom. Which means also over the religious leaders who stand in opposition to him. So on one level, it's really no wonder that the religious leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus. He threatened their power and their position. Jesus had redefined kingship on his own terms. And they didn't want to submit to him being king. But if they were really the true shepherds of Israel, if they were true religious leaders, then they would have wanted to know the truth. And that would have become clear by whether or not Jesus' words were true, not whether or not they liked what he was saying. But that's not what we see. And so these Jewish trials of Jesus display injustice from beginning to end. Well, how about the Roman trials? And why take time on this? Wasn't it the Jews who were responsible for getting Jesus crucified? Well, that is true to a point. But we also see that Peter, after the resurrection, in his sermon, Acts chapter 4, as he's praying, he lays the heaviest blame on the Jews for crucifying their Messiah, but he doesn't absolve the Romans of guilt. Here's, in fact, what Peter says. He starts by quoting Psalm 2. He says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then Peter says in his own words this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Peter quotes Psalm 2, where Jesus' kingship is proclaimed, 
And all the kings of the earth, Jew and Gentile, are called to submit to him. And he characterizes these earthly rulers in his day as those kings who plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed. It's Jew and Gentile together, all complicit, all guilty. Now in the Roman trials, the base motive seems to be about the same. It's about maintaining power. Practically speaking, the charges are different. The charges against Jesus now get shaped or phrased for a Roman audience in language they can relate to, but it's still the issue of power and authority. Now it's phrased in terms of being a threat to Caesar rather than in relation to God. So let's just run through briefly the chronology of these Roman trials, just so we get the lay of the land. It begins in Matthew 27, verses 1 and 2, that after the Jewish Sanhedrin reached their determination that Jesus should be put to death, he was delivered to Pilate, the Roman governor. And then in verses 11 through 14, you see Pilate questions Jesus. Now, Pilate's the governor of Judea. He's the representative of Caesar, so he acts on behalf of Caesar. In dealing with cases like this, he would be judging based on Roman law, but he also had great discretion to do whatever he thought fit the particular case. Now, if you were to read the, the account in John chapter 18, you would see that John adds some interesting details here. The Jewish rulers do not enter the governor's headquarters. Because going into a Gentile home would defile you. You would be unclean for a period of time. And these Jewish rulers don't want to be defiled for the Passover, which is about to happen. So it's a little bit ironic that you have these Jewish rulers trying to keep themselves ritually clean while they essentially commit murder. Pilate comes outside to meet them then and asks what the charges are. But instead of giving Pilate charges that he should investigate, they say, look, if he wasn't doing evil things, we wouldn't have brought him to you. So Pilate says, well, then you deal with him according to your laws. And they say, but it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now remember, the Romans had taken away the privilege of capital punishment, so only the Romans could carry out that punishment. So what the Jews are doing is they come and they tell Pilate what the sentence should be before there's ever any trial or investigation. They just want him dead. Well, once Pilate realized that Jesus was a Galilean, he thought, well, maybe I can shove this whole thing off on Herod Antipas. Herod was the one who ruled over Galilee as a client state of Rome. And there's some overlap in the territory overseen by Herod and that overseen by Pilate. But Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at this time, so Pilate tries to take advantage of that. This Herod, by the way, is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded because John said that Herod's marriage was unlawful. Herod's curious about Jesus, and he questions Jesus, but Jesus gives no answer. So Herod's soldiers mock Jesus, and they dress him up in rich kingly robes, and they send him back to Pilate. So at this point, now Jesus is before Pilate again, and Pilate tells the religious rulers, 
look, I didn't find anything wrong with this guy, and neither did Herod. So I'm just going to punish him and release him. That's what Pilate says he's going to do. Now note the injustice here. Pilate is willing to punish Jesus, though he says that he didn't find that Jesus did anything wrong. What's Pilate's motive? He's just trying to keep the Jews happy so that Pilate can maintain his power and authority. But that means he's willing to commit injustice in this trial. Pilate then hits on the brilliant idea to use Passover privilege. You can see this in Matthew 27, if you have that in front of you, verses 15 through 23. This is a Roman policy that had been implemented in order to keep the Jews happy. At Passover each year, the Romans would grant one criminal amnesty, forgiving his crimes, giving him his freedom. So Pilate chooses a criminal that is a real troublemaker named Barabbas, and he offers the crowd their choice between Barabbas and Jesus. And if you know the story, you know that the crowd yells out, Give us Barabbas! The religious rulers had been instigating them to turn against Jesus. But what's interesting to think about is this. Granting amnesty to a prisoner is an act of mercy. It assumes that the prisoner is guilty. So Pilate has publicly placed Jesus on par with Barabbas, even though we already know that Pilate has not found him guilty of anything. In fact, look at verse 23. Even after Pilate puts Jesus up against Barabbas, he asks the crowd, why should I crucify him? What has he done? He's willing to punish him. He's treating him as a criminal who is in need of amnesty, but he still maintains that Jesus hasn't done anything. Pilate is committing injustice after injustice here. This is all backwards. It's not justice being carried out. We have grave acts of injustice being committed by the Roman governor. And at this point, in verse 24, Pilate symbolically washes his hands of the whole thing. He says, have it your way. And so he has Jesus scourged. Mark tells us specifically that he was wishing to satisfy the crowd. And he delivers him over to be crucified. And the final part is then, we're told that Pilate sits down in the judgment seat and writes out what's called the titulus, the, the sign that's going to go above Jesus' head on the cross. And it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So the question, both for the Jews and for the Romans, was the question of kingship. Well, let's look at the specific charges, though, that are brought against Jesus here in the Roman trials. First, when Jesus is before Pilate, the interrogation centers on questions of kingship. Pilate wants to know just what it is that Jesus has claimed. And if you put yourself in Pilate's shoes for a minute, what would be your concern? Well, you'd be asking yourself questions like, is this man a threat to Caesar? Is this man a threat to the peace in this region that I'm responsible for? So 
Pilate asks Jesus, this is Matthew 27, verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? And as Matthew tells the story, Jesus' response in verse 11 is simply, you have said so. But if we look at how John recounts the story, there's more detail. Now remember how when Caiaphas questioned Jesus about being the Messiah, Jesus redefined what that meant, what it means to be the Messiah, to, to, be, to be the king. Jesus does that again now with Pilate. John tells it this way. When Pilate asked Jesus if he was king of the Jews, Jesus answered, and this is John 18, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So Pilate here might not know what to make of Jesus' claim about his kingdom not being of this world, but it's enough for Pilate to know that Jesus is not the kind of threat against Rome that he's concerned about. Jesus even explains to him why his followers are not fighting. Jesus isn't raising an army. His kingdom is something different altogether. The chief priests and the elders want to make sure, though, that, that Pilate follows through with crucifying Jesus. So they try to present charges in language that Pilate can understand. So Matthew says, chapter 27, verse 12, that while Jesus was in front of Pilate, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Now Matthew and Mark don't tell us what those charges are. But Luke does. Luke goes into some detail here. In trying to make the Roman trial outcome certain, the religious leaders offer several charges in language that the Romans would understand. So according to the Gospel of Luke, here's what we find. The religious leaders say, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. This is Luke chapter 23, verse 2. Now that would be a serious, grave charge to stand against Caesar and his policies. Is that what Jesus had actually said? No, not at all. He said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. The second thing they say in Luke 23 is that Jesus was saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Which is true, but not the way that they mean it. We heard how Jesus redefined those terms. And third, when Pilate says that he finds no guilt in Jesus, Luke tells us that the Jewish leaders were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. So they're claiming that he's a seditious teacher. He's stirring up trouble. Pilate, this guy's causing problems for Rome 
problems for you. In fact, they make it really clear. John tells us in John 19 and verse 12 that Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. See, the Jewish leaders urge the Romans to see Jesus as a political threat to Rome, a rival to Caesar. It revolves around kingship. Pilate, not wanting to cause problems with the Jewish leaders, goes along with it. The Gospel writers are clear that Pilate finds no guilt, and yet he has Jesus scourged and beaten and ultimately crucified. Again, this is not justice. This is injustice at the hands of both the Jews and the Romans. The Jewish and Roman trials of Jesus are miscarriages of justice. But that's not the whole story. What is clearly injustice at the hands of men is, in the grand plan of God, an execution of divine justice. Now, in saying that, am I saying that Jesus deserved to die? No, not at all. But at the same time, Jesus' death is an act and display of God's justice. And ironically, it's Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, who makes a statement that helps us to understand how this is possible. In John chapter 11, going back in time a little bit to where Jesus had just raised Lazarus and the Sanhedrin was trying to figure out what they should do with Jesus, we read this. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, John tells us, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, you got to catch this. What Caiaphas means is that they should kill Jesus so this whole thing is put to rest. That way there's no riots or disturbances that make Rome crack down on them. And their own power and authority doesn't get questioned or undermined. But what God means in what Caiaphas says is completely different. The divine reality is also based on Jesus' death. But in God's economy, that death will be on, beha excuse me, on behalf of the nation. And on behalf of all who have faith in Jesus in order to rescue them from their sins. You see, this is what Jesus' kingship actually means. Jesus is the true king, and a king is the representative of his people. So Jesus, the king, will die on behalf of his people. 
you've heard me explain this many times before, but the Old Testament story of David and Goliath is the greatest illustration of this. David has been anointed as Israel's next king, and he goes out to fight on behalf of the nation. In this single combat against the Philistine champion, Goliath, if David wins, then Israel wins. If David loses, then Israel loses. That's what it means to be the anointed representative of the people their champion, their king. The same thing is true for Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah King, will go to the cross as the representative of his people. His death will be, as Caiaphas unwittingly said, for the people. Paul expands on this in his letter to the church in Rome. So take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Turn to Romans chapter 3. We'll look at verses 21 to 26. So far in this letter, the letter of Romans, Paul has established that all men are guilty before God, both Jews and Gentiles. And now in chapter 3, he's answering the question of how God can be righteous and at the same time save people. How could God be just, which means that he must punish sin, and at the same time show mercy and grace. Does he ignore some people's sins? Is God unjust? Here's what Paul says. This is Romans 3. Follow along starting in verse 21. I'm going to read 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, or made apparent, made known, apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I want you to see what Paul is explaining, that Jesus' death answers the question of God's justice, both for the past sins of his people and for their present and future position before him. Okay, so first, think about their past sins. In the death of Jesus, Paul says, God's righteousness is clearly made known. The word justification means to be declared legally righteous in the eyes of the law. This justification, this righteousness, is a gift to all who have faith in Jesus. None of us have the righteousness we need because we're all sinners. We've all broken God's law, and so, unlike Jesus, we all actually deserve the sentence of death. But God gives us righteous status in his eyes in the eyes of divine law. How does that happen? 
It happens through the redemption accomplished by Jesus when God put him forward on the cross as a propitiation, a sacrifice for our sins. And look what Paul says in the second half of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The death of Jesus was to show God's righteousness. It was a display of his justice for all to see. In the past, in his divine patience, God had passed over sins. That doesn't mean he ignored them. It doesn't mean he just let them go. That would have been unjust. But instead, in his patience, he waited to carry out the penalty for those sins until Jesus came. And when Jesus died on the cross as a substitute in the place of his people, God carried out the death penalty for those sins on Jesus. And Paul says that the law and the prophets bear witness to this. All the demands of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, that pointed to the need for divine justice, all the demands of the civil law that pointed to how restitution has to be made, all the demands of the ceremonial law, which enacted the sacrifices and the atonement and the cleansing, all of that Old Testament law bears witness to what Jesus did on the cross. So the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those animal sacrifices were never intended to be the final solution for sin. They couldn't be. But Jesus, the perfect and holy and righteous Jesus, who is his people's representative king, he could be that ultimate sacrifice. His death could answer divine justice. And then Paul says, look at it in verse 26 of Romans 3, that this was not just to display God's justice regarding past sins, but also to display his righteousness at the present time. How does it do that? It makes God both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it grants righteous status to the one who has faith in Jesus. It justifies him. But it also displays his justice in that he's carrying out that righteous penalty of the law for sin, the penalty of death. So God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, every one of us today who deserves death because of our sins may find God's gracious gift of righteousness applied to our account when we trust what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty of the law for the sins of his people, all of his people, past, present, and future. The Westminster Larger Catechism says that on judgment day, the righteous shall be set on his right hand and there openly acknowledged and acquitted. That open acknowledgement and acquittal 
that will happen in the future. That's a future display of God's justice. God's justice in the cross covers our past, present, and future sins. It gives us assurance and security in the present because we've been justified in God's sight. And that verdict of the court that's in the future, that open acquittal that will happen for us one day, that verdict has been brought back in time into the present and applied to you if you have faith in Jesus. Turn over to chapter 8 of Romans as we wrap up. Romans chapter 8. See, all of this, the, 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 the good news of the gospel, that, that Jesus' death on the cross is what allows God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All of this, this good news, leads Paul to the conclusion that he gets to in Romans 8. Look at verses 33 and 34 of Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. See, the cross of Jesus is, at the same time, the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history— and the greatest expression of divine justice. Jesus was perfectly innocent. He did not deserve the death he died, but he voluntarily took that death for us. Acting as our representative king, he died in our place. And his death, his payment of the law's penalty for our sin, frees us from the curse of the law. We're no longer under that penalty. His righteous standing is granted to us by the divine court. God justifies us freely by his grace through faith in Jesus. Injustice and justice. And what can we say in response to that? Look at what Paul says, and may this be our response. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, on this Palm Sunday, as we remember the triumphal entry and you being acclaimed as king, and then we consider the following days and just all of the, the misunderstanding, and then the malevolence of the, the hatred of the, the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, and the injustice of their trial, and the injustice of the Roman trial, and the travesty that all of that is on a human scale. At the same time, you in your providence and sovereignty and great wisdom use the exact same event to carry out the greatest act of justice ever. As you display divine justice against sin and at the same time justify those who have faith in Jesus. And so this morning we simply would echo the words of Paul in gratitude for the love that you have shown to us in Christ. We pray this this morning in his name. Amen.